Hello and welcome to the Stories About Autism podcast. My name's James, I'm a dad of two boys, Tommy and Jude, and they're both autistic. Each week on the podcast, I get to speak to someone who tells us their own story about autism. I speak with autistic adults, parents of children with autism, and professionals who work with the autism community too. This is season three, episode two, and I'm lucky enough this week to be joined by my first international guest, a friend of mine who I've been speaking to online for a few years, Jill Powell, and Jill lives in America. Jill gets to tell the story of her son, Drake, and she writes the blog and Facebook page, Walk In With Drake. We get to talk about Drake's early years and diagnosis and how things work a little bit differently in America compared to the UK when it comes to services and education. We also talk about ABA therapy, communication devices, and Coda, Drake's service dog, who's made a huge difference to their lives. I really think this is an episode you're going to enjoy, not least for Jill's amazing southern accent. If you're new to the podcast, please go back and check some of the previous episodes. I released the first episode of season three last week with Carly Jones and had some amazing feedback. So thank you so much to everyone who commented and sent me messages on that. Really glad you enjoyed it. Uh, We've got lots of episodes coming up, especially um, throughout April for Autism Awareness Month. And I'll be doing my own episode as well, where I'll be answering some of your questions. If you have a moment, could you please take a minute and leave us a review for the podcast on iTunes. It really helps other people find the podcast and learn a little bit more about autism. Anyway, let's get to the episode. Here's my chat with Jill, where she tells Drake's story about autism. Hey, Jill, hello. Hi, how are you? I'm really good, how are you? Good. So thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Um, I'm really excited to get to talk to you. because we've known each other for a while now, and it's a good excuse to, to finally get to speak. Yes, yes, I'm, I'm very thankful to have this opportunity. It's, uh, it's an honour. Good, good. So do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about you and, and your lovely family? I am Jill, and I live in North Carolina with my husband and my son Drake and his service dog, Coda. And that's our little family. My husband's name is Alan. He works full time and um, I stay at home and take care of Drake and get him back and forth to school and therapy and all those things. So that's kind of where we are right now in this journey. So you're my first international guest as such. Oh, wow. That's awesome. <laughs> Everyone I've spoken to so far is from the UK or Ireland. So, so yeah, you're my first um, international guest. Cool. I like that. <laughs> so, yeah. The, take a little bit of getting used to talking to someone with an American accent but um but yeah we'll be good um yeah and with a southern American accent it's even worse (laughs) sorry about that (laughs) that's okay it's good it's good I'm I'm sure the listeners will love it okay so obviously yeah so Drake is your connection to autism yes if we go back to the beginning um when was it that I don't know that you first maybe noticed something was different about Drake or that autism sort of came into your life well it's hard. That's always a tough question for me because I'm a little bit of a helicopter mom, even before autism. Um, Alan and I had a had a child before Drake that um, unfortunately passed away when she was nine months old from a heart defect after several surgeries and procedures, and um, so that was a year of our life that was very difficult, and and that was back in. 2003 2004 and we'd actually decided that we weren't going to have any more children you know because of health reasons I mean even the doctors and um, specialists and everything advised us against having any more children because the heart defect was so severe and things like that tend to be genetic and um, so we went several years with without any thought really of having another child so when we decided that we wanted to try again. Of course, it was scary to think about, but but we were hopeful at the same time. And so because of, of that experience in, in my life and in our life, I think that I was even more hyper aware or or anticipating anything being wrong. Not yeah. not that I sit around and 
worried that, you know, oh, well, something horrible is going to be wrong. It wasn't like that. It was just my instinct was so much stronger, I think. When when Drake was born, I, I of course, was very worried, I guess you could say. Even we had had tests and lots of prenatal things done, and his heart had been checked and scanned and all kinds of procedures the whole time that I was pregnant with him. So I knew that his heart was fine, but I mm. think that deep inside, I, I, you know, you just expect the worst after you've gone through something that traumatic, it just, your instinct is a little bit more heightened, I guess you could say. Yeah, I can imagine. So he was perfectly healthy, perfectly healthy. It was, it was really a complete blessing to us. And, um, he was a good baby. He didn't love to sleep much, but I don't know if <laughs> many newborns and, and infants that do. So, you know, <laughs> that, that didn't really startle me all that much, yeah. but Probably when he was around six months old, I don't know that I thought something was a little bit different, but looking back now, I can see that even then things were a little bit different. It was little things like he wouldn't hold his bottle, like to drink milk. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, a lot of babies, they just, you know, they, they want to be more independent and they want to learn things and and he just would not hold his bottle. It was, and we all laughed and, oh, he's just lazy and he knows that somebody will do it for him. But I mean, this continued on up until he was 10 months old. I mean, it was like he just, he didn't know how. Um, from there, it just, from the, from the bottle, not a simple thing like not being able to hold the bottle. It just, I guess it just got a little worse as far mm. as things being more noticeable. He was very slow to do things like sit up. He didn't seem to have an interest in anything other than TV, which, you know, I know that children in general like TV, but I mean, he was mesmerized by the TV. And I think I, I thought that that was interesting, but I mean, I knew nothing about autism before Drake, nothing. It never, it never popped into my mind that, you know, it was autism. I just thought that something was a little bit different, but I I didn't know what it was. When he was a year old, I think that I knew that something wasn't just right. Yeah. He, he had really no interest in babbling or imitating words um, or imitation in general. You know, like simple games like peekaboo. I mean, he was a happy baby. He was he was happy and and he still is. He's he's still that way today. His personality hasn't changed, but he just didn't have an interest in things that typically developing babies do. He's always been very serious, very observant. He did not have eye contact. He almost appeared deaf, like when you would call his name. He you know, he wouldn't turn his head. And I, I remember Probably when he was a year old to 13, 14 months old is when I started Googling things. And, of course, Google is a horrible thing <laughs> most time. Yeah. You know, it's, it's always the worst thing that you could possibly imagine. Well, I remember that the first thing that I Googled was baby doesn't have eye contact. And, of course, there were numerous links that popped up and all of them were autism. And, of course, I was terrified. As, as I think any any parent is when they don't know anything about autism and all, all of a sudden you're smacked in the face with with that. Um, it's it's ignorance, just like the world. Most of the world is ignorant to it. Nobody knows what it is until until it happens to them. Um, and I kept I kept that to myself for a long time, probably three or four months. I didn't oh, even really? tell my husband. Uh, yeah, I didn't even tell my husband. Okay. Because I was so scared of it. Mm. Because everything that you read, as far as medical journals or anything, nothing is ever positive about it. Yeah. It's it's always the worst case scenario. And it wasn't until I started reading blogs and looking at pages on Facebook and, and really just learning from parents that I really, it, it wasn't that I realized, oh, this is a wonderful thing. You know, it wasn't mm. that I wasn't that quick as in terms of my acceptance, but I began to understand that this is, you know, there are 
thousands and thousands and thousands of families all over the world who have children with autism. And I mean, they're doing just fine. Yeah. So, so were you reading all of these things before you'd even seen the doctor? Yes. Yeah. It was probably around, Brett was probably 16 or 17 months old when I first mentioned to his pediatrician that something didn't seem right. And his pediatrician, like most pediatricians, blew me off. Mm. I said, no, he's just a boy. You know, they talk late. They're yeah. a little bit slower <laughs> to develop one. and yeah. all that, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I mean, I was, I was almost a little offended. I was like, look, you know, I've been around kids all my life. I mean, no, this is not typical de- behavior. You know, this is, this is strange. I mean, he acts like he's deaf. I mean, we went through the whole having his ears checked and his hearing tested and had tubes put in his ears and, you know, all of those things that I think a lot of parents do. And then none of it changed anything um, other than, you know, he didn't have as many ear infections and things like that. So his pediatrician never, never said autism to me, never. It wasn't until I, I actually, after I talked with my husband and some other people, and this was, he was getting, you know, it was, he was a year and a half old, somewhere in there. And we started early intervention, not, not for autism purposes, but just for developmental delays, right? speech therapy, occupational therapy. And it, it was useless, to be honest. He was not responding to it in any way, shape or form. And I, I truly believe it's because the people who were working with him were not as familiar with autism as, as they could be. Mm. And and that wasn't really their fault. It was just, you know, we live in a small town and, and it's just something that the school system yeah. deals with more than anything else. And the fact that I, I was picking up on something really early is a bit unusual because it was early. I mean, he was a year and a half old and he was, I was trying to get him some help you know, as early as possible, because everything I'd read said, you know, the earlier, the better that you can start intervention. And so we we did that for a good year, um, just speech, occupational therapy. And we did have some um, some people come out to the house who evaluated him and said that he probably is somewhere on the autism spectrum. Well, I didn't know what somewhere on the autism spectrum meant. Yeah, it's a bit vague, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, they said things like PDD. You know, that was one of the old ways that they diagnosed autism before they changed the scale and all that. And I remember the woman saying, you know, that's, you know, that's not really all that bad. And I was thinking, it's just the way that professionals talk about autism. It's never, it's never in a positive light, really. Mm. (laughs) It's always, well... You know, if he has PDD, then that's certainly better than autism. It's just there doesn't seem to be any hope in any of their speech when they're speaking about autism, which has always annoyed me. But anyway, we did all that for a good year. And when he was probably two years old, we we did a lot of changing and we got an autism diagnosis. I, I sought it out. I didn't wait for somebody to diagnose him. I wanted him diagnosed so that he could get you know, the additional help that he needed. So that's where that's, that's, it was a couple of years of, it, it was a rough couple of years. That was when he was finally diagnosed, it was a relief to me, to be honest. Yeah. Well, I guess by that time you'd been thinking about it for so long and read so much and knew so much that it almost does come as a relief, doesn't it? That I yes. guess that in a way that you're not going crazy and you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, you know, everyone, friends, family, different people said, I don't, you know, I don't think he has yeah. autism. And I don't, you know, I think he's just, I, I think he's just developing a little bit slower because my husband actually, he didn't have speech, verbal speech until he was three years old, which is unusual. Yeah. I mean, nothing. But of course, no other symptoms mm. or signs of autism. He just had a speech delay. And so, that really, uh, a lot of family and friends were like, oh, Alan didn't talk until he was three. That's just, that's what's happening here. And, and it wasn't just about the speech. Yeah. There were so many other things that that people weren't seeing 
or or didn't want to see what what however you want to put it so yes it it was a it was a relief to me I, it was like finally you know i have people who can see what i'm seeing it's amazing the, the way you describe sort of the first 18 months of drake's life is so similar to to jude and sort of the way sort of the traits that he showed and the the sort of lack of interest in anything other than TV, the not talking, the being slow, you know, and being always oh, a boy, he'll catch up. So, so similar. Right. What happens next in America? Like once once you get that diagnosis, what's the next steps? Well, honestly, it, it depends on what state you live in. Sure. I'd say the country is pretty split in half as far as states that have good resources and states that don't. Okay. I actually live in a state that is at the bottom. Oh, really? Yes. So what what we did was my husband and I um, actually, because we, we're, we're in North Carolina, but we're very close to the South Carolina border, um, we made the decision to get a residence in South Carolina because services are so much better there. Oh, okay. So we made that, that big move, that big change. Hmm. And and it's amazing. It's it's sad, really, that you know, just one state over, the, yeah. the resources are so much better. And I mean, to me, they are wonderful. I mean, South Carolina has wonderful resources, particularly the county that we're in. But there are so many other states, particularly up north, New York, Massachusetts, that have phenomenal services for mm. kids and adults. So. In all honesty, it just it's it's dependent on on where you live. Yeah. Um, but but typically, once a child is diagnosed with autism, then there are various therapies that are offered um, specifically for autism. Of course, most kids need speech, occupational therapy. Some need physical therapy, and then there are different types of autism specific therapies like ABA therapy, or um, there used to be one called. Uh, floor time therapy yeah. and I honestly I haven't heard that one talked about a lot in two or three years I know that I know that they still do it for smaller children children that are just diagnosed but I, I don't it's not a therapy that that goes on for several years mm. like things like ABA therapy okay so you got your diagnosis and then uh, Drake started different therapies sort of before school oh yes yeah. he um when he was two and a half we got the autism diagnosis, and he immediately started ABA therapy. And he did ABA, or he's still doing ABA, but he he did ABA for three years. Okay. Yeah, three years before he home, ever. Or... No, that was in a clinical setting okay. um, right. with other kids. Yeah. Um, we've always. We've always done it that way. It, it seems to work best. I, you know, I think it's important for them to be around their peers as much mm-hmm. as possible to learn from them and to learn to play and things like that. And it's it's been a tremendous help for him for sure. But yeah, a lot of ABA is done in home, and it's useful in the home to teach you know life skills and things like that. But I think a good mix of both is important too in a more clinical setting and in the home. Once Drake started ABA, like. What differences did you begin to notice? Almost immediately. I th- he started ABA in May of 2014, mm-hmm. maybe. Yeah, 2014. And within two months, he was signing for things oh, like really? drink. I think he had about, by the end of that summer, I think he had about five signs that he could do. And it was the first time he had ever communicated. Yeah. So to me, that was pretty phenomenal that they had taught him a way to communicate that early on. And, and, you know, people are often mystified by Drake because he's not a, he's not a typical autistic child in that Drake, I mean, in his life, he's seven years old now. He's maybe had five meltdowns. I I mean, what we would call an autistic meltdown. Now he has tantrums and he gets frustrated easily and he screams and he does all of those things. But I mean, what what we typically see with autistic children because of lack of communication or sensory overload or whatever it may be, he is he's had very few meltdowns. And I, I truly believe 
it's because very early on he was given a means to communicate what he wanted as far as basic needs like drink eat movie he he has right it's kind of transformed to ipad now because he's obsessed with the ipad but but he was taught things that he desires and he wants he was taught early on how to request those things and it may seem very basic but i think it made a world of difference because he you know if he was hungry he knew how to tell us if he was thirsty he knew how to tell us if he wanted to watch tv or or ipad or whatever it was he knew how to request those things and and it, it helped it helped a, a, a lot so here in the uk there's sort of not too much known about aba um it's not something that's readily available uh there's a handful of schools that that use it what's aba like for drake like what what's the sort of typical what's a, it's maybe a typical program for him or a day for him with aba well now it's it's a little bit different um as children age of course you know they have different goals and yeah. different needs and different things but early on it was very much about teaching him to request things that he needed or wanted without being frustrated. Right. Um, it's very much a behavior modi- modification therapy. Mm-hmm. It works extremely well for children who are aggressive, who are um, who have impulse control, who who get easily frustrated who have trouble waiting or have trouble with demands of any kind. And and Drake has a mix of those in various forms. But again, I believe because we started so early, we, we're seeing less of that because he was quickly given ways to communicate. You know, ABA is very controversial all over the world, yeah. not, not just in the United States, but it's very controversial here as well. But I believe it's just been given a bad name um, because you have some organizations and some clinics and therapists and that have really given it that bad name. I, th- I think that any therapy that you put your child in, you have to be very careful and you have to watch and you have to learn and you have to very closely look and say, OK, is this working? Is this a safe place for my child? Are they, are they enjoying what they're doing? I think for Drake, it's always been, he's always felt loved where he is. He's always been encouraged. He loves that positive reinforcement of being told, good job, and, you know, I'm proud of you, and you're doing great. And, I mean, he has grown by leaps and bounds because of that form of communication and, and, and therapy and just They've helped him do things that he wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. I couldn't have done this thing. Yeah. I, I don't, I mean, I'm forever grateful for all that they've done. I mean, sure, I, I would have learned and I would have done the best that I could, but I, I don't believe I could have made even half the progress that they made in a very short amount of time. Mm. You know, ABA is, people call it, and I, I cringe when I hear this, they say, well, it's like training a dog. You know, you tell a dog to sit. You tell a dog to sit, and the dog sits, and you give him a treat. And you're like, good good boy, you know, you're doing a great job. Sit, and here you get a treat. And when people hear that, they're like, oh, that's horrible. You know, it's like you're training an animal. And, and But I'm, seriously, it works. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm not going to try to sugarcoat it or anything, and I'm not comparing my child or your child or any of our children to dogs. It's simply positive reinforcement works, and they don't always use food. They may use things like the iPad or a toy that the child wants. And, you know, on the flip side of that, people say, well, I've seen ABA therapists withhold drink for hours because the child wouldn't request it. That's absurd. I would pull my child out. Yeah. I mean, simple as that. I've never had one of great therapists withhold his drink for an hour because he wouldn't request it. I mean, when, when he doesn't request it, they do it for him. They, you know, they put their hand over his hand and they do the sign for drink and then they let him have the drink. And eventually that repetition of learning, he learns, okay, if I want my drink, I need to do the sign. And he was never without drink or food or anything else more than a minute. (laughs) You know, it's just like it's 
people take one little snippet of something or one bad experience that someone had or one thing that they've read on the internet and they say, oh, this is horrible therapy. This is abuse. It's not abuse. I mean, Drake loves his therapist. He loves all the kids at the clinic. They play and they have fun outside and they have a playground there and they have swings and all kinds of sensory things. And I mean, he loves it. He doesn't always like doing the work and working on goals that are difficult for him. But he he's never screamed and cried and I've had to drag him into place. I would never do that. So, you know, if your child is uncomfortable with the person that they're working with, then obviously you get a new person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that's it. Like you've sort of nailed it there that when you said that it's positive reinforcement and it's using what motivates them to help them learn and every kid's different right and what works for one child doesn't work for another and and i think that's that's part of you know what we go through with our kids is trying to find the right thing for them and aba obviously has had in the past like you said some bad practitioners or bad clinics or bad you know experiences probably like most therapies have but it sounds like you know in certain places and things are really modernized and and it's you know it's, it's always about having the right people to to run the therapies i think right I, I, they have to see it as more than just a paycheck or a job mm. it's it's a i think it's a calling that only few are qualified for yeah um it has to be something that you're passionate about and if your therapist or the person that's helping your child doesn't have a passion for helping autistic people then they're not going to be good at what they're doing mm. they're it's just not going to work in any therapy. It has nothing to do with just ABA. It's any therapy or any school setting or any teacher. It's just not going to work as well when you, you've got an individual that isn't compassionate and understanding of all that autism can be. Mm. And yeah, it's, it's the same as you said of, of any school. You know, two schools can follow the same curriculum or the same you know, therapies, and one school can be amazing and one school is not. Exactly. It's it's down to the people who are there doing the work. I agree. So tell me a little bit more about Drake and and what sort of autism means for him now. I know he's, so is he still, does he still use sign to communicate? Very few. Yeah. He uses the, he'll use the sign for drink a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course he, he, he uses the sign for iPad a lot. That's a motivator. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Um, It's actually helped us tremendously with school we've we've seen a little bit of aggression this year so um it's a huge reinforcement to behave Mm -hmm. and it works well for him but he communicates mainly now with his aac device okay and there are you know as you know several different programs that kids can use his in particular is very complex Actually, when when they first when his speech therapist first recommended it, I was like, that is too hard. That is too complicated because a lot of the programs that I've seen for children are seem simple. You know, you if you want something to drink, you hit drink. And, you know, there are some basic ways of communicating on there. And this is very complex and that it it requires motor planning. In other words, if he wants to press the button for a drink, he has to go through a series of steps to get to that particular icon to hit drink right and i thought that is that's too complicated for me i don't like this i was very opposed to it i i thought that it would hinder future verbal communication and i was wrong and i'll say i'm wrong <laughs> <laughs> the reason that particular program was chosen for drake is because he has apraxia and apraxia of course is very complex and it has to do with you know, the muscles of the mouth not communicating with the brain properly, and it's just so complex. And this particular program is designed particularly for children with apraxia because it helps with motor planning, which is an important step to future speech development because the brain has to motor plan in order to speak. So that's why the program was chosen, and honestly, he caught on like magic really 
yeah, it was it was pretty phenomenal. It was a slow process for the first the speech therapist Quincy Quincy's her name. She actually brought in like a demo device, and they just used that during therapy for several months. And she was like, "He can do this. He's got this. This is going to work." And so we got him his own device. And of course, it takes a lot of learning because anybody new who works with him, whether it's teachers or teachers at school or new therapist, I mean, so it's a hard process for anyone to learn to use the device. Yeah. But he's gotten so good at it now that if the person working with him doesn't know where a word is, he can show them where the word is. I mean, he's he has it. I don't know. I don't even know where half the words that he knows are on there. But he yeah. knows where they are, and that's all that matters. In the last couple of years, his speech is actually, not his speech, his, his communication on the device has actually exploded. He can quickly find new things that are added. His frustration level with it is not as high. For a while there, he was very frustrated because it, it requires work to learn where all these words are on the device. But now that he understands it and he, of course, has developed more, then it's, it's become a lot easier for him. But yes, he does use a few signs, but mainly that is his, his form of communication, is his AAC device. So does he use his device like at home, day-to-day with you, just requesting for things, or can he sort of explain how he's feeling with it? Or He can. Um, we... Honestly, and uh, people are going to frown on this probably, but we don't use it that much at home. Mm -hmm. Drake is really, really good at nonverbal communication. And we have our own way of communicating at home. There's really not a need for it. But if there's something specific that he wants, like he's hilarious, he'll be in the living room and all of a sudden he'll grab me by the hand and he'll just point in the kitchen. And I'm like... (laughs) I don't know what you want. Yeah, that sounds that sounds like my life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just point. Just yeah. like, hey, get on it. I don't you know, you know what I want in there, so go get it. <laughs> and so sometimes I'll either, you know, I'll say, Show me what you want. I mean I'll I'll make him go over and open the refrigerator or the cabinet or, or whatever and and show me what he wants. And if he if he's not really sure of where it is, then yes, you know, I'll say, Well, use your words. And tell me what you want. And he will um, yeah. with no problems. So we use it in situations like that where he either, you know, can't tell me non-verbally what he wants. Or we use it a lot when, like, we're I'm reading him a book. Or sometimes even when he's doing things like watching TV, I'll get it out and, and we'll just kind of have a little bit of a conversation about what he's watching. Like, just to refresh basically so that he knows okay if i if i need to say something i can have a conversation with someone about what's happening on this tv show with my device because he needs to learn how to generalize with it not just use it for work yeah you know what i mean yeah but i've noticed in the last year particularly that he does use it a lot more unprompted if some if we're somewhere and he sees someone and they say hello to him, he'll use it to say hello back. Oh, Whereas great. before, I would have to say say hello, you know, yeah. and and I still do sometimes, but he's doing it a lot more. He's doing it at school, he's doing it at um, therapy. He's just, I think he's finally beginning to realize, okay, you know, this is my way of being able to communicate with people. Whereas for the longest time, it was just, I think that he treated it more like work. Yeah. Like, this is a part of my work. And he's just recently, in the last year, realized, okay, this is how I talk. This is this is working for me, and this is how I can either get what I want, or I can have a conversation with people. And yes, you asked me if he uses it to express his feelings. He does. His speech therapist is amazing. She's she's taught him all these emotions like frustrated, sad, happy, mad, and he uses them frequently. He even in class in at school the other day, he was working in a group with some other kids and he got really frustrated because he he didn't know what to do and and the little boy that was sitting beside him asked him, he said, "What's wrong, Drake?" and Drake said, "Sad." I mean, that's huge. Yeah. 
for him to do that. It's, I mean, it's, it's not great that he's sad, but it's amazing that he's able to express it. Yeah. Yeah. So that of course cuts down on frustrations a lot Mm. because he's able to say, you know, I'm sad or I'm mad or I'm frustrated or I'm happy, whatever it may be. So a lot has happened with the device in the last year as far as him realizing how valuable it is to him in terms of communication. And does Drake have any, obviously lots of our kids have some sensory challenges and does he have any particular challenges around, around that? It's hard to say. Drake is more of a sensory seeker. Right. He, he loves, um, he's very rough in that. I mean, he's a, he's a big boy. (laughs) He's almost as big as I am. (laughs) And, and he loves, you know, tickles and rough play and jumping and, all of those things, but in terms of like sensory aversions, some sounds bother him. It's not really the sound, it's more the frequency of sounds. Like, for example, my vacuum cleaner at home. I forgot, what do you guys call a vacuum cleaner? Uh, yeah, vacuum or Hoover. Hoover, yeah. yeah. Anyway, our but vacuum yeah, the, cleaner. The, most people would know, yeah, would know what yeah. it means. Our vacuum cleaner at home, he, um, he has always loved it. And it's one of those He's loved loud, it. Oh, okay. <laughs> it loves it. Yeah. It's a Dyson vacuum and it's so, it's the loudest vacuum cleaner I've ever heard. It works great, but it's loud. He's always loved it. In fact, when he was a baby, he would go to sleep if I vacuumed. <laughs> it was just very soothing to him. All other vacuum cleaners, he is absolutely terrified. Oh, wow. And they're not, they're not as loud. So I'm I'm just kind of blown. I, I still haven't figured that out, and it's been he's, seven he's years. He's got expensive so. tastes. Uh, really? <laughs> <laughs> it, I mean, the, he's gotten better about it. I mean, used to, it would give him horrible anxiety if he even saw a vacuum cleaner. Right. Um, I don't know what the deal is with that, but he's he has gotten better. He will tolerate being in the same room with it. He doesn't freak out about it. But But there's something about that frequency. But then it's odd because, like, the fire alarm at school, you know, when they do fire alarm testing and and all that stuff. I mean, yes, he covers his ears like anyone would do. Yeah. But it doesn't bother him. Loud, like, crowds of people don't bother him. But sometimes if he's in, like, a building that has an echo in it, like a big gymnasium or something like that that echoes, he, he can't tolerate that. So it's almost like the frequency of sound. Mm. He's sensitive to it in, in some way. Um, he has some sensory issues with food. He'll only eat certain textures. Um, that's been a big issue for us. He, he has a great appetite and he eats great the seven or eight foods that he will eat. Yeah, That's about it. And I, I do think it's a texture sensory thing for him as far as having that aversion to food but but no i don't i don't think he's overly sensitive as far as his senses are concerned he he does have a little bit of an issue with bright lights particularly the sun but but again it doesn't it doesn't lead to any major meltdowns his anxiety gets the best of him more than anything he gets really anxious if he's uncomfortable but of course, that's gotten better over the years in in some ways. So what? But yeah, he's he's more of a sensory seeker overall, I would say. What are the sort of things that trigger his anxiety? Things that he isn't sure of. Okay. Drake has always been the type that, and I imagine it's frustrating for all autistics: the unknown, the confusion of the way our world works. You know, you know what I mean, like. Yeah. Yeah. Things that that we find easy in life, I, th- I think that's why they like structure so much. They like that predictability, that control. And when he doesn't have that predictability and he doesn't know exactly what's happening, that triggers his anxiety more than anything. It used to be a big issue in the car, like if we went a different way for a drive, if, if we were going to therapy and we went a different way than normal, I could see him getting anxious, his breathing changes gets really pale his palms sweat that has gotten better again as he's gotten older because i, I think he's become more aware of yeah. things um yeah. and more comfortable in his own skin 
but again, it, it can, it can be things that I don't think about. I mean, I'm always trying to think ahead of what could bother him. And many times what I think will bother him doesn't at all. And it's something quite different, but he, and it can be different things like cutting his fingernails one day. It might bother him in the next week. You know, I can tell that he's getting anxious about it. So I think a lot like, like us, you know, some days we're having off days and some days we're not, we can, we can tolerate things better one day than the other. And his anxiety seems to be that way and that it's, I really can't predict it all the time, but I can say that he, as he's gotten older, you know, he's learned to control it better. He's become a lot more confident and more at ease within himself, I guess you could say. So I'm guessing one of the reasons his, uh, that you have his partner in crime, Coda, is, is because of his anxiety. So yes. do, do you want to tell us a little, a little bit more about Coda? Coda came to us rather unexpectedly. I, when Drake was around three years old, his anxiety was really bad then. It was it was probably the worst that it's ever been. And I had thought for a while about about getting getting him a service dog. And, you know, I thought he was a little too young. But then I had had read so many things about the dogs helping with anxiety and, and, and different things like that, giving the, the child some confidence. And so when when I started doing a little bit of research Drake's therapy clinic that he goes to for ABA actually has a program called um, Dogs for Disabilities where they get a dog every few years or or if there's a need for a child with autism. And so I I spoke to the director and um, we talked about it a little bit. And and anyway, they, they got a dog. And I initially put it off because I just didn't know that he was ready for that. He didn't like dogs. He, he wasn't interested in dogs. So I was just kind of unsure about it. And then we actually met the dog, Coda. I mean, she, she was little. She was probably, oh gosh, I don't know, five months old when we first met her. And what, what sort of dog is she? A black lab. Black lab, yeah. And she was very rambunctious and very wild and of course it wasn't trained any at all and and he didn't he wasn't scared of her but he didn't care for her either yeah so we i just i just didn't have a good feeling about it It was a lot of money it's so so expensive to to get a dog um because it requires so much training and it requires a lot of time and work it's very much like having another child and i had kind of let it go like well this you know this just isn't for us this isn't going to work and they called me or emailed me I can't remember I think they emailed me and said you know they really wanted me to have the dog or for Drake to have the dog and they actually had a sponsor who was willing to help with the cost would we be interested if the cost was significantly less and I was like well that sounds good. So I, I kind of <laughs> thought, well, all right, yeah, maybe this is meant to be. Yeah. And so we we talked about it, Alan and I, and we said, okay, you know, we'll give it a shot. And Coda's trainer, when he first met Coda, he was not very impressed with her <laughs> because really. she was very wild. I mean, she, you know, she's a Labrador retriever. They are notoriously wild and rambunctious and happy playful dogs that's just their personality yeah he said i just don't know if this is the dog for drake she just you know she's just a typical black lab and and you know i I don't i don't know he said let me take her for a while and see what i can do and honestly he had her for one week and she was a different dog it was like it was like a child who has never been disciplined or, or never had any structure or routine who suddenly has it and, and they had been craving it all along. That's, mm. that's what it reminded me of. So she totally transformed into a different animal almost. Um, and he's, uh, he's a phenomenal trainer anyway. So after, after he had her for a while, he brought her to the house. And anyway, to make a long story short, we we're still very much unsure of how it was going to work 
because again, Drake didn't, you know, love dogs or really have much interest in anything like that. And he was so young. I mean, he was three and a half years old by this time. And so we took her into our home and, and, and it just, it just blossomed. I mean, he, he wanted to play with her. He wanted to lay on her. He was so enthralled with her. It was, it was amazing. And of course, as, as time went on and, and we had her and it, I didn't really notice it. I don't think immediately, but the anxiety just totally dissipated. Wow. It was just gone. And, and like I said, today he, he has little bouts of it where he'll get a little nervous or anxious. And I can always tell because if I hold his hand, his palms a little sweaty, but it's, I mean, he would, his anxiety was so severe for a while that he would vomit. We haven't seen that at all since having her. And it's it's funny because she doesn't she doesn't go everywhere with us. We I mean we take her most places because she's allowed most places, but like we don't take her with us when we go to church on Sunday because sometimes we have to get up and leave and I you know, I don't want to cause a big scene with my kid and my dog and and, and Drake loves church, so she you know, she's not really needed there anyway, but but at school and therapy and all places where he would tend to get anxiety or become anxious or frustrated, she goes with him. And, and it's just, it's just been amazing. I mean, some days, yeah, some days it's, it's not a typical, I think people, when they see a kid with a dog, particularly an autistic child, they think, Oh, you know, they must play and love on each other all the time. They're very much like siblings. Sometimes they don't pay each other any attention. <laughs> you know, he gets aggravated with her, and I think she gets frustrated with him because he's had a he's had a day where he's been off and he's done some screaming or something, and she's probably just tired of hearing him. But then there are the sweetest moments where I walk in, and I mean, he's just laying on her, or they're playing, or or different things. But she has just been in such a comfort and a constant in his life. Yeah. And I think has given him so much confidence because she's, she's with him in any situation where he may be anxious or maybe frustrated. She's always there. And that's one thing Drake has always needed is just a constant in his life to kind of keep him more grounded. So it's, it's been a wonderful thing. Yeah. That makes sense that, her just being there in sort of nearly every situation will just help his anxiety to yes. to lessen. It does make a lot of sense. And so when you're out, if you you know if you're walking on the street, does she just does he sort of walk her or how how does that work? Does he does she just walk alongside him and sort of stay next to him? It it varies, but yes, we don't like if for example if we if we go to the to the grocery store. Hmm. Yes, I mean he would. I mean, sometimes I, I I walk with her and and he walks between us and or or she walks between us and he's on one side and I'm on the other and she has a little handle on her vest and and he holds that but he's getting much taller and bigger now so it's eventually going to get to a situation where you know he would have to bend over to to grab onto her her harness but now we're starting to work with him where he actually holds the leash and and he's doing fine with that. So yeah, he either holds the leash or he'll hold onto her harness, um, and and walk with her that way. From from what I know of uh, you and your stories, and you know from following your blog over the years, and and from being friends, like it seems to me that that you've been on sort of quite a journey from since sort of first suspecting that maybe Drake was a bit different to to where you are now. How would you say autism has changed your life? I'm one of those, I guess, odd people who who thinks that autism is a good thing. Mm. <laughs> and and when I say that, I, I sometimes cringe because, not because I've said it, but because society, I can hear the gasp. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when, when Drake was first diagnosed, it was horrible to me. It wasn't horrible that, you know, my, my child had autism. It was horrible because I didn't understand it yeah. at all. And I think that I came to a place of acceptance pretty early on in the journey, I'd say within a year. 
I had accepted it. I was fine with it. I had stopped crying about it. It was more like a mission to me, a mission to get him the services that he needed, to make sure he had the right therapies in place, to try to explain to a world who is very ignorant about autism that it's not a bad thing. And and that was a process. I mean, I didn't immediately understand everything about autism in a year. I think that every year, you know, autism isn't something that you just learn about and you know about it. <laughs> it's definitely yeah. a process. And and children change and they become teenagers and then they become adults and 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 just like with a typically developing child, things change. Personalities change, behaviors change. You know, life is always changing, and and autism is certainly certainly notorious for that. I think that we have been very blessed, and that that Drake is Drake doesn't have a lot of the severe behaviors that can come with autism. But you know, I don't mm-hmm. know that I don't I, I don't know if that's going to last. Yeah, I, who knows? Um, I could be faced with some of the things that some of my fellow page owners and friends are faced with every single day. I mean, do I want that? Absolutely not. But, but I think I understand autism enough now and I've, I follow enough pages and I read enough stories until I've just prepared myself for whatever may come. And I think any parent does that with, with any child that they have autism or not. But but we have been very fortunate in that Drake hasn't had a lot of the negative side effects of autism. He doesn't have a lot of comorbid conditions that further hinder his development or, or make him more aggressive. And, and, you know, to me, autism is just a very unique way of being. And I, I'll, I'll be honest, I'm a little envious of it sometimes to just be that content in your own little world. And that's how I see Drake. He's just very content being different. Yeah, I get that. I get that sometimes when you do, you know, if you see Drake be so content, and often I see it with with Jude more than Tommy, that they're just in this state of, doesn't matter what's going on in the world around them, they're just happy. Yeah. And I, 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 I truly envy that sometimes. Yeah. I mean, Drake doesn't, I mean, I think Drake understands the majority of what is said to him, what he hears, what he, I think, I think I would be shocked at all that he knows. And I've, I've never been one of those people who, who thinks that he doesn't understand. I mean, even when he was small, I have I, never treated him like he didn't understand me. And I think that's important. I don't I don't care how severely affected a child is. I think that we always need to speak to them in such a way that that as if as if they understand what we're saying, whether they do or whether they don't. But just to be that content and that. It's almost like a state of euphoria sometimes for Drake. And I just I I wish I could be there sometimes because he doesn't know all of the hate in this world and all mm. of the evil and all of the horrible things that we as adults know. And and I understand that, you know, some children don't. If you sheltered them enough, they're not going to know those things either. But Drake just doesn't. Even if I had the news on every day and I, th- I mean, I think eventually he would begin to process some of that and understand it. I just don't think he would care. Like, I don't have time for that. I mean, (laughs) you know, I can go here in my own little world and I don't even have to think about that. I mean, it's, it's something to envy if you ask me to be able to just escape that way in your mind. Yeah, that's true. But, you know, I don't, I don't fault people. I know that many people on this journey have a very difficult time seeing autism as a blessing. And I understand that because, you know, if, if Drake was very aggressive, if he self-injured, if he, if he tried to hurt me, if he was hurting others and, you know, if he never seemed content in his body and seemed to be in pain or, I, I mean, I hear so many things and read so many things and my heart breaks for those families. 
you know, I don't know that I would be sitting here saying, oh, it's such a wonderful thing. Yeah. I understand that. But at the same time, I don't think that it's helping anybody or anything if we continually put out into the world how horrible it is if you have a child diagnosed with autism. Because it, it can't be horrible all the time. I mean, we have we have to, yes, we have to tell the world this is what it looks like. But at the same time, I'm not going to give up my hope that, you know, either one day Drake may speak to me verbally or one day that Drake may um, have a job or be able to live independently. I just can't give that up. And I, I don't think I would, no matter how severely affected he is, I don't think I could ever just let go of that hope and say, well, this is the way it is and my life is horrible. So my view of it is, I guess, a lot more positive than some people. And, you know, I don't expect everybody to just be unicorns and rainbows all the time. I, I, that's, that's not life in general. But I think it's important to tell the world what autism is, but at the same time, let them know that, you know, it's, it's a very unique way of seeing things. I think that's true of, of people, of people in general about anything though, isn't it? You know, some people can choose to see the positives in things and some people will focus on the negatives regardless of whether it's autism or, you know, any, any topic in the world. So I, you know, for me personally, I I think positivity is great. It's, it's, you know, it's what, what enables you to get up in the morning and to you know go through another day even if it's not going well and i think as long as you can keep that hope and positivity but just be honest as well i don't think there's anything wrong in being honest if you are feeling down or if it is a tough day or week or month then you know i I think that's that's what the world should see i agree so what when did you or what made you and when did you decide to to start writing about autism it was probably six months after Drake was diagnosed. And again, I was, I was still in that place where, you know, I didn't know if I was doing things right or what I was supposed to be doing, or if I was getting him the help that he needed. And it's just a very confusing, scary time. And so I followed a few pages on Facebook um, that had helped me tremendously, but I was a school teacher before before Drake was diagnosed and and I've always loved to write so I decided that I would write how I was feeling mm. because many times I can I can write much better than I speak so I thought well maybe you know this will be a part of the healing process for me to to help me understand and and you know maybe it can help someone else and so I wrote my first blog um it was five or six months after Ray was diagnosed. And it's funny because I can look back on some of those early ones and I'm like, wow, I was really messed up. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's it, the great thing about it, isn't it? It's almost, it yeah. becomes almost like a diary of, of how you're feeling at different times. Yeah. I mean, it was it's strange to look back at, at how I was then and how I am now and how I have changed, you know, very much like Drake. I mean, he's totally different than he was in the beginning. Um, and I am too. In good ways for both of us, mostly. So it was it was a healing thing for me. I needed it. I needed to write down how I was feeling. I needed to um, get it out of my head, so to speak, and and get it on paper. And from there, another blogger told me, you know, well, you should open you should get a Facebook page. And I'm like, no, I don't know if I've got time to deal with that. And it was the absolute best thing that I've ever done because it, it opened the door to meet so many people like you and others who, who just get it. Yeah. I mean, nobody gets it unless they live it. And yes, there are those rare few. I mean, I've got quite a few people who follow the page who have no connection whatsoever to autism. They just happened to somebody shared my blog or a meme or something. And they came across my page and they started reading and following and they're just mesmerized and they've learned so much about autism. And, oh, I wish all people were that way <laughs> because it, it gives them an opportunity to, you know, if they see a kid that's screaming, and crying on the floor in the grocery store, they're not as quick to judge yeah. 
it just and and they've they've sent me messages and they've told me these stories about how you know before I followed your page, I would have thought about that situation differently. And I mean that's what it's all about. If you can just change one person's mind about how they view autism and how they view children and it has nothing to do really with a child being autistic or not it's just you know that kid's having a hard time you don't need to judge his mom and say oh she she needs to discipline him more you know the kid's just having a hard time so I think that having the page and the blog I mean it's not only helped me but it's it's helped other people it's helped other parents who are struggling it's helped people who had no idea what autism is even was to understand. And even if you've helped one person, I mean, that's enough. Yeah. It makes it all worthwhile, doesn't it? Absolutely. And like you said, you've got to know so many other families who live similar lives to you. So I'm sure it's, it's been a big help to you in that way. Yes, very much so. Um, You know, I've talked to, and I have some, some parents locally who who I'm friends with and and of course we talk and we discuss things but it's just a it's a whole different world when you have a child that's autistic and and you're having a tough day with with that child and that child's having a tough day you can almost think back to some post or some blog that you read and and it just makes you feel not so alone mm. and you have you have friendships that you've built with these people who, who you know are going to be lifelong friends and you know their story and it's almost, you feel like you know their children and it's just such a community of people who have come together who, who I believe truly need each other to get through the day-to-day things, whether it's celebrating something that child did or, or just saying, hey, I get it when that kid's having a bad day. It's just so important. It's it's totally changed the way that I feel about autism by because I choose to follow pages who have similar thought processes I do, who who are able to tell it like it is, but yeah. they're also very positive and hopeful. And those are the types of friendships that I've made with people who who understand that hey, this is hard, but you know, we've got to keep on keeping on for our kids. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've I've said it many a time. It's it's been a huge help to me uh, getting to know people like yourself uh, and making friendships and just just knowing. Yeah, there's other people out there who they might be on the other side of the world, but you can just drop a message to every now and again, and it makes makes you feel a hell of a lot better. Absolutely, it does. So, just want to make sure that everyone knows where to find your blog. So, what should they search for? If you're looking for my blog. You go to Walking with Drake, Blogspot, um, that's through Google. And the Facebook page is, of course, Walking with Drake. And I'm also on Instagram, Walking with Drake. I don't do Twitter. That's just, I just can't get into Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) It's a whole other world. Oh, yeah. Um, Perfect. I'll make sure that's all linked up in in the show notes as well. Um, Just before I ask you the final question, Jill, I just wanted to say thank you, um, firstly, for coming on and spending the time with me today and sort of sharing your family's story and I want to thank you for always being so positive and trying to always talk about hope even I know you've had some real challenges over the years and I really admire you for um, how you've handled it and everything you've been through but you know your stories are always full of positivity and you know every time I read them they even if they're about a tough time, they sort of make me smile by the end of it. And yeah, just want to thank you for, for all that you do. Thank you. I feel the same way about you and your boys. Oh, thank you. Okay, perfect. So final question. What's one thing that you'd like the world to know about autism? I'd like the world to know that autism is not a horrible thing. And when I say that, the first thing that comes to mind is, I'm not sure if you know this, but the CDC or Center's, for disease control in the U.S. just recently um, released the latest statistics on autism. And the number now is 1 in 40 yeah. diagnosed. And that's huge. That's that's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot of autistic children and adults in the United States. And I noticed 
that as people that I know and, and people that I, I know personally and, and people that I just line, people sharing those statistics and, and they always, they would, they say things like, I'm feeling frustrated by this. This makes me extremely sad. This is horrible. This is awful. And all I can think when I say, when I see things like that is what if your child or an autistic adult, you know, sees that Yeah. and they see, all they see is this is horrible. Autism is a horrible, horrible thing. That makes me incredibly sad because I know so many autistic adults who they're doing just fine in this world. Yes, they have bad days and they wish that they didn't have the sensory problems and the anxiety and the seizures and all of those things. But the majority that you talk to are very content and happy being autistic people. And they don't think it's horrible at all. As a matter of fact, they think that we're kind of weird. <laughs> so I don't, I just wish that the world didn't see it as such a travesty. Yeah. You know, it's not cancer. It's, it's not anything horrible. It's not going to kill your child. It's, it's just not a terrible thing to me. And when you put that message out into the world that you're so frustrated and sad that one in 40 people in the United States is autistic, then what you're saying is, is that you feel sorry for autistic people and that you wish autism didn't exist. Mm. And that's a horrible thing to me, because if you say that, then you're saying that you wish Drake didn't exist yeah. or Jude or Tommy or or anyone. I can name so many names. And so that's my message. message my message is, is autism is not a horrible thing. And if you would just open your eyes just a little bit and get down on their level and just do little things like look at Christmas lights the way that they do or look up at the trees when the wind blows. I mean, you'll start to see that, hey, you know, we should envy these people. They're, yes, they're different, but different's not a bad thing. And so that's that's what I would say. If I could say one thing about autism is that there's absolutely nothing that's horrible about it. It can be hard, yes, but it's it wouldn't be horrible to be diagnosed. That's that's a message that needs to be heard. Thank you so much, Jill, for taking the time to talk with me and share Drake's story about autism. I really hope you enjoyed that. Make sure to check out Jill's blog, Walking with Drake, and hit the subscribe button to make sure you get next week's episode. Thanks for listening.